1: Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash audio. Visit IXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
2: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kevin Phillips. I just came. I don't know how long exactly,
3: but Shaggy was still listing places he had been seen in the first act. (laughs)
2: That and more, but before that, I wanted to let you know that on the latest episode of my friend Chris Castiglione's podcast, On Books, Chris will be chatting with Wolf 359's Zach Valenti about my friends from the state, Thomas Lennon and Ben Grant's book, Writing Movies for Fun and Profit. You can read 800 pages and like seven of those books to get story structure, or you can read this sentence. Take a human being that you like, put them up a tree, throw a rock at them, and bring them down. Each week, Chris brings a new fascinating guest talking about a new fascinating book. Books like Mating in Captivity, Letters to a Young Poet, Sex at Dawn, The Power of Now. Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast and download On Books or go to www.onbooks.com hyphen com and check it out online. Also, you've been nice all year, and maybe now you're feeling just a little bit naughty. Well, Adam and Eve knows exactly how to help you with that. Through New Year's Eve, when you order that special naughty gift, you'll get 50% off almost any one item at AdamandEve.com. That's not all. You'll also get a naughty and nice kit free with your purchase. Your kit will come with a special item for him, an adult toy for her, and something you'll both enjoy unwrapping together, plus free shipping on your entire order. Adam and Eve has gift items that are perfect for him or her. Try an adventurous adult toy, a spicy movie, or even a new slippery sensation. So check out AdamandEve.com today for this special holiday offer. Get 50% off one item, a free Naughty and Nice kit, and free shipping when you enter the offer code R-I-S-K, that's risk at AdamandEve.com. Now here's the show. kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. <laughs> I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Rye Cooter behind me now. Ah, the coot, the good old coot. I am speaking to you right now from a hotel room in Cleveland, Ohio, where we've just done a show, a workshop, and a panel. I am completely nude. In in my hotel room as I'm speaking to you, which reminds me of all the strange places and ways I've been creating these little hosting segments in the past six years. Shannon Casein said to me the other night, he said, you ought to go back and listen to some of the hosting segments and create a story from clips from them, you know, about the time, say, that you were begging the listeners to send a business person to take control of the show, or when you were like desperate because your apartment was just being besieged by bedbugs, or when you had to be hiding under comforters and mattresses because the slum you were living in was so noisy, I think that's a great idea to take a look back at the story of the creation of the podcast. Via some of the clips of the hosting of it over time, not to mention all those wonderful real orgasms that I published on the show here in Cleveland this weekend. We've been talking a lot about storytelling. We had a panel with Tig Notaro, uh, Shannon Case, and Elna Baker. We were talking about uh, the state of storytelling and what storytelling does. And at one point in all the sharing that was going on over the course of the whole weekend, a woman shared something very interesting. She said she told a true story at a true storytelling event at a college recently. And at one point in the story, she said, when I was, you know, eight years old, my little sister was so classically pretty, was so stereotypically what the media says is pretty. And I always felt so chubby next to her. And some guy yelled out very angrily, very accusatorily to her, you're fat shaming. And she talked about how shocking it was to feel attacked while she was sharing like that. I said, yes, we are experiencing more and more of that sort of thing. On risk, it's very, very hard to create this overall feeling that this is quote-unquote, a safe space, as they say, for getting into very sensitive areas, right? Uh, That we want people to feel like, no, 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 everywhere else you're yelled at. You can't talk like that. You can't speak like that in mixed company. This is not appropriate to speak like you would with your best friend when you're in mixed company. No, no, no. Speak according to these guidelines. Okay, now you're in a different place. Speak according to these guidelines. I have so many friends who are public figures who uh, tell me they will never, ever do this show just because they would just feel so constrained like choosing every word so carefully. The great paradox is that on Risk, you know, within the, whatever, 700 stories or so that have been shared on the show at this point, There is this overall feeling of, okay, we are trying to create a place where you can really go to sensitive places. And the paradox is that on a weekly basis, there will be someone attacking us, calling us insensitive. Some people say, well, why don't you just censor the show just a little bit more carefully? You know, curate it just a little bit more carefully. You don't hear 70% of what we record like you know most of the live performances and then the live performances you do here will have to chop out about five minutes by the way usually the live audience never has a problem with any of it we just understand that putting stuff out over the internet someone who's not there seeing the face of the performer, feeling the energy in the room that a conversation is happening in real time, someone like that can just pause their podcast player and say, okay, I didn't like that exact phrasing of that sentence or the tone of voice in which it came out in that moment, and I'm going to get online and rail about it. That said, the vast, vast, vast majority of listeners to the podcast and people who attend the live shows are so supportive so encouraging so sweet about showing just such beautiful appreciation it's just that i've noticed that as the show becomes more popular i think uh there's more of this other sort of reaction going on as well anyway We have a lovely episode today. It's called New to Me, because these are three stories from people who found themselves in situations where it was just very, very new. What was coming at them? In a little bit, we are going to hear from Denver uh, comedian and storyteller Kevin Phillips. He told a story at our Denver show with musical backup. So that was an interesting little... We haven't done that in a long time. But before that, a beautiful story from a Portland writer. This was told at our recent show in Portland. Uh, she is the author of the book, Objects in Mirror Are Closer Than They Appear. Here is Kate Carroll DeGootz with a story we call... The unbearable lightness of being.
4: So, Katie Lang wrote a song that I like to think is about me, and it goes, She's a big bone girl from southern Alberta. You just couldn't call her small. You can't really call me small either. I mean, let's not mince words. You can probably call me fat. I'm German and Irish and genetically hardwired to love carbs and starchy food and store fat for future famine. (laughs) Spatzel with gravy, I love it. Coal Cannon, it's an Irish dish with cabbage and potatoes and lots of butter. I love it. Basically, if it's starchy and it's carby and it's fatty, I'll eat it. Which was a problem because in 2012 my girlfriend left me and I found myself dating for the first time in 29 years. That's horrifying enough, especially when you consider the last time I dated I was 19 years old and now in the brave new world of swipe right or swipe left, I had to look good. I had to do something about it. And I had to fight this voice in my head, these two opposing voices that said, you can either be butch or you can be fat, but you can't be both. And I wasn't going to put on a skirt. So I hit the gym and I started working out because that was all I had. I also joined a program called Lean Eating that had three basic tenets. You got daily lessons that looked at the physiological and psychological reasons for overeating. You got a serious strength training program, and you got these foundational habits. The first two were, eat to 80% full and hunger is not an emergency. Now, eat to 80% full, three years later, I still don't know what that means. (laughs) But I took it at the time to mean, don't eat to fill the giant hole that's in your heart because your girlfriend left. But really, you could fill in the blank here, because I like to eat my feelings. Whether I am happy, sad, disappointed, depressed, ashamed, aggrieved, it doesn't matter. Fill in the blank. I will eat. The idea that hunger is not an emergency... Try to tell that to my brain at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when I have been locked in a gray-walled conference room under fluorescent lights with a bunch of engineers that are arguing the relative merits of DDR-RAM and DDR4-RAM. I will tell you, hunger is a goddamn emergency, and get out of the way between me and the M&Ms, all right? But here's the thing. I persevered, and over the arc of 13 months... I lost 42 pounds. For the first time in my life, my driver's license matched the weight on my Ironman scale. I got an Ironman scale so I wouldn't have to do the Ironman. So flash forward 15 months, and I'm still maintaining. I'm still driver's license weight, even though I'm starting to eat to 100, 110, 150% full. I don't really recognize what's going on, but I'm really, really stressed. I know this much because I've got a mom with Alzheimer's, and she lives alone up on the Olympic Peninsula in an isolated house at the end of a road, surrounded on three sides by Olympic National Forest. And oh, by the way, she doesn't think she has a problem because she's an ICU nurse and so she should know, right? And she won't hear differently from her kids even though I've got the paper from the neurologist that says she's incapable of managing her own affairs and I've got power of attorney for her. My sisters and I, we decide that she's got to move to Portland, which is where I live, and it won't be so bad for me because it's assisted living, right? We think, how hard can it be? It's going to be easier than the four hours each way that I'm driving every month to check in on her. Now I only have to drive across town once a week and check in on her, because it's assisted living, right? Except we did not anticipate the phenomenal cognitive decline that occurred when we took her out of her own space. It was crazy and I was her primary caregiver, so I was the person that had to continually reorient her with phone calls multiple times a day. Did you throw out the family photos? No, they're in your closet. Did you, did you, did you? I had to take her to new doctors. I had to get her on board with everything in Portland. And I was there because we asked her to quit driving when she moved to Portland. She was getting lost in her small town, and we knew driving in the city was going to be a recipe for disaster. But she was super mad about this. And every time she would call me up, I would say, Mom, you can drive if you will tell me how to turn on your cell phone. And she would say, I have a cell phone. And I would say, exactly So she was so angry at me, and she was also in the angry phase of Alzheimer's, so that was a challenge in its own right. She was always mad about something. I'd open the door to the apartment, and she'd be sitting right there watching TV and look over her shoulder at me with her Irish eyes blazing, and I'd be like, hi, Mom! (laughs) And she would just turn back to the television She thought I was moving her from apartment to apartment so that I could move my girlfriends into what she thought was her main apartment for a little tryst in the evening. And she called my sister up and told her this. And then my sister said, Mom, Mom, that's not true. You're you're always in the same apartment. And she said, you'll see when I die, you're going to find my stuff spread all over town. And she wouldn't leave this apartment. We picked this assisted living facility because it had all these activities that we thought she'd like. And at first she wouldn't leave, she said, because she didn't like the people because they were all old. (laughs) And we're like, okay. And then she wouldn't leave and go to the dining room because she couldn't visualize where it was and how to get back to her apartment. She kept saying to me, I don't know where home is. So she got these meals delivered, and they were stacked up on the counter. And it was amazing food. There was steak with Bernays sauce and mushrooms. There was chicken marsala over rice. There was chicken alfredo over fettuccine, beer-battered cod, and dessert. Lemon meringue pie, gluten-free chocolate cake, because it's Portland-assisted living, right? (laughs) Dutch apple pie, ice cream with caramel sauce. And I was so stressed, I would walk in and I would start eating dessert. I ate it all because I was afraid of her anger. I ate it all because I was so sad at how small her life had become. I ate it all because I was afraid, what if, like my friend Carol's father, my mom lived this way for 12 years, what was that going to mean for my life? But I kind of figured it out. And I realized, hey, if I just cook myself a nice lean-eating meal before I go over, I'll be good. So I stir-fried some vegetables, scrambled some egg whites, added a quarter of a cup of black beans because that was all the starch I was supposed to have, and I ate it. And I drove over there, and sitting on this little counter of this tiny efficiency kitchen, because she's supposed to be eating downstairs, was a bag of heavenly donuts. <laughs> and I opened the bag... And I smelled this starchy, yeasty, sweet smell and I shoved those donuts in my mouth. I just couldn't stop. Hunger really was an emergency and only mint Milano's from the top of the refrigerator or some Kummerspeck was going to cure it. Kummerspeck is a German word for grief bacon. I was eating my feelings. Between April and July, I gained 35 pounds. It had taken 13 months to lose 42 pounds, and in four months, I gained 35. That's like nine pounds a month. That's an extra 30,000 calories a month, which when you break it down, is actually only 1,000 calories a day. And if you're drinking, which I started to do too because she came back to Portland, You can add it up quickly. A glass of wine is 200 calories. Have a second glass, add some appetizers and some dessert and do the math there. I was effectively doubling my caloric intake and my body, or more specifically my fat cells, remembered exactly what to do, even as my brain forgot all of the habits. Even as I was berating myself in my head, you fat butch, for eating cake and pie and donuts. It was like a survival instinct. I was around this death energy of my mother, and bodies have an instinct towards life, and calories are life, and so I ate. This past July, I signed up for lean eating again because I clearly had to do something. And just six weeks into the program, the week they introduced the habit Eat to 80% full. My mother died. And suddenly, a great weight was lifted from me. It sounds really unfeeling to say this, but it was true because I'd been grieving the loss of my mom for 10 years, every time she lost a bit of information, when she said to me, hey, you should call me because I don't have your number. Oh, and I've had the same phone number since 1996. When she no longer remembered what city she lived in and kept saying, Minneapolis looks different to me. When she couldn't remember that she'd seen my sisters only two days earlier. I was grieving all of this and her death felt like a relief. I couldn't control her decline and death any more than I could seemingly control my own eating But on the morning she died, something shook free in me. And the day after her death, I woke up, got up, went to the gym, and lifted weights for an hour. Because in the end, the only thing I could really control was whether or not I started again. Thanks.
5: the deal a meal prayer lord grant me the strength that I may not fall into the clutches of cholesterol at polyunsaturate I'll never mutter for the road through life is paved with butter and cake is cursed and cream is awful and ten extra pounds is hidden in every waffle a double chin is in a chocolate drop and tummy bulge is in a lollipop Teach me the evils of hollandaise, of pasta and gobs of mayonnaise, and crisp fried chicken from the south. Lord, if you love me, shut my mouth.
3: The path to sexual freedom uh, complicated for everyone, and I don't know if the internet's made it better or worse, but I'm a child of the 90s. We had dial-up and one computer, you know what I'm talking about? So if I asked Jeeved, curious about anal, we were gonna discuss it at the dinner table. (laughs) And my parents are awesome, but no one wants to discuss that at the dinner table. It was Kansas, which is where I'm from. You would know if you ever needed me to do math or science in a pinch. Can't do it. So I didn't have a lot of options. So I turned to HBO, where they had a documentary series called Real Sex. All the help I needed. That and Oz. I... I knew I was gonna be sex positive or kinky at age four. Someone tried to explain to me monogamy at six and it was like, no, that doesn't sound right. One person, mm, couldn't even settle on a daycare provider at the time. So I'm gonna try and real sex take Kevin this. We're gonna do a three chapter series on the most Helpful sexual experiences of my 21, 22, 23. We're gonna get a little musical help, but let's start with chapter one. Thong girl. Ooh, you know the people that make your spine tingle? You know who I'm talking about? You fall in love from a distance, you know their coffee order, you know. These people move you. She wore a different thong every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It was summer session, U.S. history up to 1867, taught at 8.30 in the goddamn morning, presumably to keep it a secret. And I didn't miss a class, because every day, two chairs up, one over, red strapped to her back, black lace, color patterns which I didn't even know existed at the time. The line I used to get her was genius. She gave her final class presentation on the Battle of Chancellorsville, a skilled victory by General Lee. Her arch nemesis in the class, we'll call her not Thong (laughs) Katie, raised her hand and says General Lee just knew, he just like knew where to put trips, he didn't have spies or anything. My girl said, it's called strategy. He went to West Point, next question, and sat her down. (laughs) She even scared the teacher. Afterwards, I walked up, gave her that smile, said, hey, way to General Lee that presentation. (laughs) I have found out people think that's lame. Fuck you. I've been killing it with flirting for over a decade. She came to my fraternity house that night, which is an embarrassing thing to say out loud. It was a weird one. She threw a beer at my head and said, show me your room. So I proposed to her as you do when you meet that person in your life. I'm gonna skip a few steps, but I'm inside her now. That's where we are in the story. It was very vanilla. Um, I used a condom. I mean, you heard the pickup line. I should have used three. About 40 seconds in to Shaggy's It Wasn't Me, this is way better, she stops and licks her hand and releases the beast on my ass. Fucking heart. Heart. I do MMA and this hurt. And I looked at her like, do we have a fucking problem here? But I did not say anything because I was inside her and I'm a gentleman. But she could see the need for explanation on my face and very quietly and... She said, I'm a spanker. And like Quentin Tarantino yelled action, she fucking hit me again. This time, she made a guttural noise that left her mouth and reached in and just grabbed my spine, started shaking it, and released the semen in my body. As if it was some sort of silent protest, I I just came. I don't know how long exactly, but Shaggy was still listing places he had been seen in the first act. I didn't know what to do. The mood was gone for me. <laughs> she was digging it and I couldn't tell her. I was embarrassed. I had just found I, I really liked being spanked and I had no longevity in the same 45 seconds. That's a lot of information to process. So I grabbed my groin and faked an injury. Judge away, please. Because it's worth noting I'm a bad actor, so I'm sure she describes it as, I was hooking up with this guy and he just had a seizure, basically. I just grabbed my hip, was like, I think I need some ice or something. Is that what you use? I don't know. She put her hand on my back gently and thanked me for a memorable evening and left. And I was still sitting there 30 minutes later, not sure what to be more embarrassed about. The fact that she had spanked the cum out of me in less than a minute. (laughs) Or that I was still on the ground faking the pretend groin injury. (laughs) Women are magical fucking beasts. She looked into my soul, said four years from now, someone's gonna ask this guy at an orgy if he likes to get spanked. And whether or not I said yes is a different story, but I was prepared. <laughs> Chapter two, J'ai de Montreal, which doesn't mean I love Montreal, but we thought it did while we were intoxicated. <laughs> I was there in grad school. It was myself, two other GTAs, and three students. We had had a sexually charged evening, so we went to where you go after something like that. A strip club. a no, sex club, not yet. I like the audience. It's <laughs> like, a sex club. It's like, I need to talk to you after. No. No, this was a full contact, full nudity strip club called Law Gentlemen. Here's how they get you in a strip club in Montreal. They put an ex porn star slash bouncer out front. And then another strip club puts another one and they just start yelling at each other. And if you've never seen two ex pornography bouncers, Talk about what their strip club has to offer. I do not know how you can say you've lived. <laughs> Bouncer from La Gentleman won over Super Dance Contact Dance after he told us it had lesbian shows. We heard no more. We entered the establishment. And as we entered, this place looked like where Will Smith goes to get a sweat on. Just this beautiful, pulsating music women dancing and hanging from poles, so beautiful they could only come from one of the most beautiful cities in America. And I fell in love. So did my penis with everyone. But the six of us decided we were gonna get a drink, taking the scene. And then I lost track of my bad idea friend and she completely redeemed herself. When she came back, with a five foot two Vietnamese woman and a six, wo- six foot two woman that described herself as Norwegian. They were giving away what they called the footlong special. Good idea, friend, got us a deal that I'm positive was more expensive than the regular raid. Now, if you purchased a lesbian sex show at a strip club, sir, you look like a normal person. Wouldn't you think that's just two women grinding on each other and occasionally including you? She you shake your head yes or no? He's like, yes, because you fucking told me to say it. <laughs> Here's what they do in Montreal. The Vietnamese woman who was in charge said, oh, sit down. And I apologize for the accent, but it is exactly how she sounded. Norwegian immediately takes her underwear off, revealing a glow-in-the-dark clit piercing. This would be our North Star to the experience. <laughs> the Norwegian begins performing delicate but assertive oral. And in a manufactured way, the legs of the Vietnamese woman start shaking, and she's screaming, and she's telling her what to do and how to do it and where to do it. something. Should not have been hot about this because I was sitting next to three of my students, but no one told my penis. At a minute and a half, the song switched, and they switched. Vietnamese woman says, Stand up to the Norwegian and bends her over and just kind of standing behind her, which was hilarious. Went straight tongue into ass. Wasn't ready for it. Wasn't ready for it. I've always been a questions person. I mean, grad school, right? So I asked, excuse me, but is your tongue in her ass? Because I had to find out. She leaned in, took her very recently used fingers, grabbed the back of my head, and said, oh, you don't lick your girlfriend's ass? Be a man. You can believe in whatever fucking religion you want. I saw God in those eyes. I had been told to be a man financially. I'd been told to be a man around the house, do some dishes. No one had ever said when it came to rimming people, be a man. And I'm a fan of credentials. I'm trusting this woman. And I think she knew four years later, someone was gonna ask me in an orgy.
0: <laughs> oh,
3: the magical fingers. Complex carbohydrates. Keep playing this hot, I will get an erection. That's a 20% promise. Chapter three. I was recently heavily influenced by the movie Magic Mike XXL yeah which no one should say out loud you shouldn't be influenced by it i was didn't want to tell this story i'm going to i'm gonna borrow a term from parks and recreation i was gonna have a treat yourself masturbation party you know what i yes yes thank you denver because it was time to explore anal sex with myself you got to do that men women, if you shut off a part of your body, you shut off a part of your soul. That's the speech I've been giving for 11 years. Is it, what do you think? It's not bad. So I sought out an expert. I spoke to a friend of mine a very vocal bottom. We've lived together. I know he's good at what he does. He said, use a toy, exact same basic idea. So I did, I put some music on that made me want to impregnate myself. I lit some candles. I'm just feeling good, you know what I mean? It's not slow R&B, this feels good. This makes you want to explore yourself. And I don't have much to tell you about the experience other than it was like listening to Nick Offerman read porn on a drive, it was beautiful. (laughs) I inserted the toy I saw God. It did look like the Vietnamese stripper. (laughs) And I had an orgasm that put the fireworks above the Rockies. And then I stopped. Because I was done. And you start backtracking the steps you go through. And I very carefully exited my vibrator. It's important to tell you what the vibrator was now. It was an attachment piece. I appreciate how many O's were there in the crowd. That was nice. Well, apparently during all of my clinching and Nick Offerman listening, (laughs) would you calm down? This is embarrassing. I pulled the toy out to reveal a piece was missing. Still in orbit, presumably like a glorious magic trick with none of the fucking magic. (laughs) I laid there sweating profusely. (laughs) Lubed up to all hell. Who needed that? Two different kinds? That was bold. (laughs) And I started laughing. and then crying uh, because it's funny and sad. I had covered my bases. My roommate was home in case things broke real bad. And I sat there on the bed with this guttural laugh. And I wish I could say that squeezed it out and this was a story about laughing during diversity. And you should, but that did not help. And I clip back to a very familiar memory from my youth. Freshman year of gym class, when we would do calisthenics and we would have to do the duck walk and people would cleverly say, put your asshole on the ground. An idea arose, help comes from everywhere. I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna do it a little, so I duck walk. I'm like, I'm breathing, I'm going around the bed, we're fine. First step doesn't do it. Second step does not do it. The third step did it. Oh, it was the monument of unclenching. It was amazing. If you're supposed to treat your body like a temple, I've always treated mine more like an above average county fair. But, know what you want? Listen to other people. Duck walk if something gets lost in your ass. You guys were amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, gentlemen.
6: I know nothing's wrong Nothing I I got plenty of time I You got Light in your eyes And you're standing Here beside me I love The passing of time Never for my Always for love Cover up and say goodnight Say goodnight
2: This is risk. This is Iron and Wine and Ben Bridwell behind me now. And of course, this is a cover of a Talking Heads song. People always assume that this one is a love song, but I just feel like all of the lyrics... Of the talking heads, or most of them, are so abstract and expressionistic that they could be interpreted in a in a lot of different ways, and I love that about them. Speaking of musicians, Kevin Phillips story he had back up there, you might have noticed, by a group that calls themselves Complex Carbohydrates. Um, they are John Sondericker, whose guitar solo you hear at the beginning of every episode of this show. And Jeremy Ruggles. Fabulous musicians from the Denver area. Before that, we heard from good old Richard Simmons. And next up, something that was shared at our recent show in Seattle. This comes from Julia Skertzer. She's gonna take us back into heavier terrain here. Here she is now at The Risk Live Show in Seattle. It's Julia Skertzer with a story we call JP.
6: We're a woman.
0: Uh, So, it was a summer between grade 11 and 12 for me, and I had a new friend, and she asked me if I wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons. I'd never played before, but I said yes, because I really wanted to learn how to play. And she said, Okay, I know the perfect person to be our dungeon master, henceforth referred to as DM. (laughs) And that's how I met JP, JP wasn't your typical, like, nerdy dungeon master when you think about dungeon masters. He was, like... Like, I walked into the cafe where we were going to play, and he was this, like, really, really interesting guy. He was this tall, slender guy, and he was, like, half Thai, so he had this, like, dark coffee-with-milk sort of complexion, and he spoke really slowly, like, as if he was telling a story, but all the time. And I was smitten. <laughs> And a few days later, he called me and asked me on a date, and I said yes, of course. He was so cool. I was I was sixteen, and he was nineteen, and I'm from Canada. And in, when you're nineteen, you can drink. And so JP introduced me to this like world of alcohol and like going to parties that I really hadn't experienced before. It, it wasn't like a broy sort of drinking culture. It was like he was a dungeon master, you know, like he had his friends and they would like, and we'd all go to parties and just drink and enjoy each other and I was in this circle of friends and it was, it was so wonderful and welcoming and he was just so cool, guys. He, like, when he answered the phone he would say, word up, these be the greatest Jews on the block, the cock of the walk, who know how to talk the talk, go ahead. <laughs> and he would be kind of like, uh, uh, uh what (laughs) unless you knew him and then you would just say hello because that's what he was really trying to say and I remember the first time he kissed me um we were walking down the street and he turned to me and he said Julia would you ever regret something you didn't do or something that you did do and I said I'd rather regret something that I did do and he said me too and then he kissed me And that was kind of JP's philosophy. Like, we would do some crazy... Mischief was, like, his middle name. We would go into abandoned parts of Vancouver where no one was around, and we would just do all sorts of crazy stuff. And, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Um, And we dated for about six months, and around a little bit before, you know, it was, like, January, we started kind of drifting apart. Like, he... When I would come to his house after school, because I was still in high school, but he was, like, out of school and he wasn't really doing anything, his friend would be, like, on the couch, and so we wouldn't really be, like, spending time together as a couple. He would just be, like, with his friend in the couch. And, I... and JP wasn't my first boyfriend, so I... I met up with him and I said, you know what, like, I don't want to be the kind of girlfriend that, like, tries to change you. So I think that it would be better if we were just friends. And he didn't try and, like, beg me to stay or anything like that. He just, like, agreed. He said, yeah, I see that you're unhappy, and I don't think that I should try and change. And, yeah. So we parted ways, but, you know, we were horny teenagers. And one week later, it was Valentine's Day, and there was a party at his apartment, and I went with my best friend. And I was drunk on that vodka cranberry that JP taught me how to drink and I went up to him and I said I hope that we don't do something that we regret <laughs> but I did <laughs> and JP said I have to tell you something and it turns out that the reason that JP had been drifting away from me those past few weeks is because on New Year's Eve he had cheated on me with another girl and he was drifting away from me so that I would break up with him rather than like finding out that I, he had cheated on me and then breaking up because of that. Because he thought that it would kind of like save me some heartbreak. And that kind of caused a ripple in the friend group because everyone was like, that's a shitty thing to do, JP. But you know, throughout all this, we were still really fond of each other, and that definitely wasn't the first time that we tried to hook up post breakup. But then, you know, I graduated high school and I decided to go away for university, and JP, um, he was half Thai, like I said before, so he was going to go to Thailand for a year, because um, he had family there. So we parted ways, and the next summer, I was back in Vancouver, and um, I knew that JP was too, so I gave him a call. We met up and we started like making out, and he said, <laughs> and he said I really missed you, Julia. I want to try this again and I said you know like I I love hooking up with you but I don't think I can be your girlfriend again and he said okay he respected that Um, a few days later I started dating another guy but JP wouldn't stop he was calling me texting me sending me Facebook messages pretty much daily telling me that He really missed me, and he felt that he had done something really wrong to me and that he wanted to do right by me by trying it again. It even got to the point where I told the guy I was seeing. I was like, look, my ex is still in my life, and I still consider him a friend, but he's starting to harass me a little bit, and I just wanted to let you know that. And it got to the point where I just said, JP, like, I just started dating someone new. Like, Can you just give me two weeks where we don't talk because I just need some space. And he said, okay, two weeks of radio silence, got it. A week and a half later, I get a text, and it says, Julia, I need to spill my guts right now. Please let me talk to you. So he calls me, because he's my friend. But he just keeps saying the same thing that he was saying before, like how he wants to do right by me and try this again. And, And I said, JP, I have a boyfriend now. And he said, no, Julia, I want to be your boyfriend. And I was like, look, JP, like, I really care about you as a friend, but I don't think I can hang out with you one-on-one anymore because, like, we clearly still have something between us, but I don't want to be the kind of friends that you have to, like, put parameters of, like, if you're in a group, it's okay, but if one-on-one, it's not okay. Like, I don't want to be those kind of people. I think it's just better if we don't see each other anymore at least not for the summer. I don't want to see you again, JP. And he said, okay. And the next day, it was after work, and I checked my phone. I had a missed call from a number I didn't recognize. And so I called it back, and I was like, hello? This is Julia. I got a call from this number, and the man on the other line said, Julia, this is this is Terry, it's JP's father. And I was like, ugh, JP called me on his parents' landline because he knew that I wouldn't pick up if it was his cell phone. And I was like, no, it's okay, you don't need to tell JP I called. Like, I don't want to talk to him right now. And Terry said, no, Julia, JP is dead. And, like, I just had that moment where... I didn't believe what had just been told me. I, I screamed into the phone, are you serious? Like, which is not the right reaction to have. And I found out that JP had hanged himself the night before. And I was the last person he spoke to on the phone. Suddenly I was attacked with these questions from JP's father. He said, were you sleeping together? How in love with you was he anyway? At the time... I was only 18 and I I thought to myself like I didn't think about how unfair it was that Terry was asking me these questions because I just kind of understood that he had so many questions and he just needed answers. But I, I couldn't bring myself to tell him that the last thing I told his son was that I never wanted to see him again. I hung up the phone and I just felt numb. I didn't... I didn't even cry. I just felt like like a zombie. I went to the memorial service that night, and I didn't really cry. And then the, I went to sleep, and the next morning I woke up at, like, 4 in the morning for some reason. And I just thought about that exact way that JP laughed, and I just lost it. Like, I cried for four hours. I cried until 8 a.m. I just felt so... Alone, I felt that distinct feeling of like wanting something so badly that you know you'll never ever get, and that is for your friend to be alive. In the next few days, I was just such a total wreck, and I remember feeling just feeling like I would never be happy again. And like the friend group that JP's friends, they were such a tight group, and we would always like we would always be there for each other, like texting each other and In the middle of the night, if you'd wake up and you'd suddenly remember that you were so sad and then we'd text each other and someone would be awake because how can you sleep when your friend has just died? It was also just such bad timing. Like, my sister's bat mitzvah was that weekend. Like, it was just really bad timing. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people ask me afterwards about the issue of guilt. You know, a lot of people, when I told them, What had happened, they said, it's not your fault. And, you know what, I knew that it wasn't my fault. I mean, couples fight all the time, and people kill themselves quite rarely, so it's statistically unlikely that that's what happened. And yet, a part of me always wonders, you know, what would have happened if I had said yes? Or if even if I just noticed that something was wrong... It wasn't just about me and him, it was about him and something that he was going through that he couldn't express, and he thought that maybe companionship would have, been, would have been what he needed. But J.P.'s motto in life was that he'd rather do things that he regretted than regret things that he didn't do. He was impulsive. That was his nature, and ultimately that's what killed him. I just wish sometimes that at least one time he would have held back rather than just going ahead and doing it.
2: all for this week's episode, folks. This is Masoon behind me now, and I'm now going to read you that big old list of places we're coming next. November 28th, 2015, we are in Los Angeles, and December 12th, we're in Salt Lake City. On the 17th, we'll be back in New York, and on December 19th, we will be back in Los Angeles. In January, I believe it will be the 15th or 16th, we will be in San Francisco. We will also be in Nashville, Tennessee in January. The date is to be announced. The theme will be Humiliating, so please pitch us, Nashville, your humiliating stories. Then we'll have our first show at the Bell House in Brooklyn on January 27th. The theme is Big Deal. In February, the dates are yet to be announced, but we're coming to Austin, Dallas, and Houston. Austin, the theme is confused. Dallas, guilty. And Houston, hostile. <laughs> They're randomly chosen words, folks. They don't have anything to do with your town. <laughs> In March, we're coming to Washington, D.C. and to Chicago. So look for us there. And in April, our first trip to Vancouver. The theme in Vancouver is Overwhelmed, Chicago, Ecstatic, D.C., Powerless. So pitch us your stories all of those places. And if you're wondering, well, how do I do this storytelling thing? We offer training as well at our school at thestorystudio.org. So get on over there as soon as you can. And don't forget that our shop has all kinds of mugs and totes and t-shirts and phone carrier cases and stuff like that on our, that's in our shop at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
5: Off other people's plates? Do you eat off other people's plates? Do you eat off other people's plates? You see a pickle you want or half of a sandwich because it gives you a chance to to nibble and taste. You see a pickle you you want or open the the Pepperidge Farm butter cookies, pop them all down as you stroll the aisle, a hamburger in your left hand, the Coke in your crotch. (laughs) Shut my mouth.